together with God's people to pray for boldness. We saw Ananias and Sapphira a few, a few weeks ago. And last week we had that lovely phrase that Kevin used. New Testament believers living in light of the resurrection in a Good Friday world. So let's read our passage, which is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's just pray together before we get into the, the passage. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We sit under your word. We pray that you would speak to us by your word. It's not about what we think it says. It's about what you say it says, because it's your word. And Lord, we're to sit under it. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at our passage, we're just going to divide it in three. The Mackins would say we'll divvy it up into three. We'll look at the problem, verse 1. We'll look at the solution, verses 2 to 6. And then we're going to look at the result, verse 7. So first of all, the problem in verse 1. The early church at the start of Acts was a small group of like-minded people. They were of one mind and they were united. And when the church was at its beginning, when it was in its infancy, there were just 120 people in an upper room that shared bread together, that ate together. They raised their voices and prayed together as one. They shared their homes together. And in fact, many people, as we've seen, they sold their homes and laid the money at the apostles' feet because they saw themselves not as individuals with individual life goals, but they were united as one body of Christ with the same mission. The church has been increasing in number, and the people had been of one heart and one mind. In verse 1 it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, God had been blessing his church. And with each attempt the devil makes to try and stifle the gospel, more and more people are being saved. The devil's failing. By the time we come to Acts chapter 6, there were quite a few thousand people, possibly even 10,000 early believers. The church had seen explosive growth. But now we come to this passage and the problems start to come. There's a few complaints. It's like the situation in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Abraham and Lot and how God blesses those two men with, with wealth and with family and with more cattle. And the result of that blessing is that there's strife amongst the herdsmen. In the end, Abraham and Lot have to go two different directions. Well, here the Lord has blessed the church with growth. And the result is that there's a major problem because the devil starts to attack the church from within there's complaining up to this point the devil has tried direct opposition from the jewish council he's tried intimidation and persecution but the gospel spreads he's tried hypocrisy with ananias and sapphira 
but the result is that God purifies his church, and this time the devil tries to corrupt the church from within. All the time the devil's on the back foot. He's having to rethink his plan, and he's having to react to a God that's in control. He's constantly having to think and rethink his line of attack. And here in the passage, we see maths in action. The Lord's been multiplying to his church. He's been subtracting from his, his church, taking out Ananias and Sapphira. But here in the passage, we see division. The devil hopes to divide and conquer by raising one group of Christians against another. So who are the, the Grecian Jews that are mentioned in verse 1? Who, who are these group of widows? These were a group of Jews who spoke Greek and who used to live outside of Judea and Galilee. They were a group of Jews who were scattered amongst many different areas and they'd come back to Jerusalem. This group of Grecian Jews met together, in fact, at their own synagogues, and they read the Greek Old Testament. Now, the other group of Jews mentioned in verse 1 is the Hebraic Jews. I'm not sure how you say that, but I'll go with my pronunciation. Um, these were local men and women who read the Hebrew Old Testament, and they were born in either Jerusalem or Judea, and they thought themselves to be superior in many ways because they'd always lived in Jerusalem. They perhaps looked at the Grecian Jews with suspicion due to their unfamiliar ways. So you've got these two very different groups of people with different cultures reading the Old Testament in different languages, and there's a tension that emerges. One group, the Grecian widows, think they're getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, obviously, in the, Old, in the New Testament and Old Testament times, the widows didn't have anyone to look after them. They're completely reliant on the church, and the church rises to meet that need. They meet that need, as James 1.27 says, to consider the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. This group of, of, uh, of widows are so poor that it says they have to go to the, the, the church every day to get food, such as their, their reliance on, on that. They have to go every day in order to get food and money to survive. Now, the passage does suggest that their complaints are genuine. Verse 1 suggests that there were this group of Grecian, uh, Grecian Jewish widows that were getting overlooked. We know from Acts that many of the early followers of Jesus sold their lands and cast the money at the apostles' feet. Now, the rich Hebrew Jews would have had more to sell, so maybe they thought they should be getting more out of the fund than the Grecian widows who would have been poorer. So it may have been deliberate. But the reason may not have been deliberate, and I think in the context of this passage, the, the overlooking wasn't deliberate. Remember, the church has seen explosive growth. It's gone from 120 people in an upper room to almost 10,000 Christians. So it probably was the fact that these people were genuinely overlooked. Up to this point, remember as well, that it's been the apostles looking after the widows. In Acts 4 and 35, when people... When people sold their lands, they cast the money at the apostles' feet. And then it says that they distributed to each as everyone had need. So it was the apostles' responsibility. And because of this church growth, the responsibility was overwhelming. They were too stretched. And this group of widows is overlooked. Before we come to the solution in verses 2 to 6, I think we need to pause and think about this. Remember the context of the problem. It came at a time when the church was growing. Now, I truly believe that God is blessing us as a church. As I come to church every Sunday, every couple of months, I see a new face on a morning or a night. God's blessing us as a church. God has been blessing us as we preach the gospel on a Sunday afternoon outside. 
He's been blessing us in the youth clubs. And as I listen to people and their stories of sharing the gospel, God has been blessing us as a church. And yet if the early church model is anything to go by, this is the time the devil will come and attack. And we need to be prepared for that attack by developing and cultivating a spirit of unity. This passage is about the devil attacking with division. And we need to be prepared as a church by having a spirit of unity. When I was at a university many years ago, I'll not tell you how many years ago it was, but in the Christian Union there were about 100 Christians. And we'd, we'd have a, a big meeting on a Thursday night, but then during the week we'd meet in small groups, maybe seven or eight people, and I used to lead one of those little Bible study groups. And before each Bible study, the, the leaders would meet together and they'd prepare the study together. I used to get sick to death of some of those small group leaders talk about unity. This is a strange rant. I used to get sick of it. Because what they meant by unity was that you didn't talk about controversial issues. If you had a group of seven people, you weren't meant to talk about different versions of the Bible. If you had a group of seven people, they might disagree on that. Or you couldn't talk about baptism because some of those people might have a different view on baptism. You don't touch that. You find what you agree on and you only talk about those things. I don't believe that unity. That harbors an atmosphere where murmuring and complaining thrives. And we need to be a church that cultivates a spirit of genuine unity, one where we can talk about anything. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 133. It's only three verses, but I, I want to read it out because I think it's relevant. Psalm 133. That's the psalm of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down in the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The psalm starts, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then that little psalm finishes, for there the Lord commands the blessing. And that's not a coincidence. God blesses a church that's united. We need to be a people that are able to talk about controversial things, disagree on controversial things, and yet be united as a body of Christ serving him. Because as Psalm 133 says, it's a beautiful thing, it's a wonderful thing when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And that's where God's blessing is. During the week, I find myself stopping and watching a pigeon. In life, you sometimes look at a preacher and think, there's a dull man. <laughs> that's probably one of those instances. I was stood watching a pigeon on top of a lamppost. And the sound that that little pigeon made was incredible. The sound reverberating around the car park. Don't take this to the heart, friends, but I believe we're like pigeons. We can use our voice for good, or we can use our voices for bad. And the impact that you can have as a pigeon in terms of the sheer number of people that can hear your voice is incredible. The sheer number of people that can hear your complaints and your murmurings, or the sheer number of people that can hear you building each other up and encouraging you in your walk with God. 
We need to be voices for unity, sharing the love of Christ and nurturing an atmosphere where the love of God and the unity of God grows. In Acts 6, we see the devil trying to attack the growing church by having one group of people complaining against another. They had an issue that was bubbling away in the background, and it eventually came to the point where it had to be addressed and get it sorted out. And we, at this time of growth, need to be prepared for the devil's attack by cultivating the spirit of unity. Isn't it wonderful that the Bible is an accurate account? It doesn't try and gloss over things. Back in Acts, we've got an honest portrayal of the, the early church, right from, Acts, right from Judas committing suicide, that tragic story, to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And here we've got a complaint against the church. Later on in Acts, we'll see in Acts 15, that Paul and Barnabas disagree with each other so strongly that they have to go their own, their own directions. This is an honest, true account of what happens when the gospel is preached, the devil attacks. When you go out to your shed at nighttime and you flick on the light, the bugs come. When the preaching of the gospel is done, the devil attacks. And one of those lines of attack is with disunity and argument amongst God's people. So let's be prepared by being a church that's being united, truly united, not superficially. Now we come to the solution. What do the 12 apostles do as a result? They gathered all the disciples together. The phrase in some versions of the Bible is, they call the multitude together. They call the, the multitude of people together, and they get them to choose from among them seven men who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. These men that were to be chosen had to be qualified, but it wasn't a worldly qualification. They didn't have to be, have a master's in finance or in administration or anything. Their qualification was they had to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, or in other words, full of the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that the decision isn't like the choosing of the 12th disciple back in Acts 1. Back in Acts 1, the disciples decide that because of Judas's betrayal, there are only 11 and that they should have a 12th disciple. Well, back in Acts 1.26, there's this proposal that there's two men. There's Joseph and Matthias. How on earth are we going to determine God's will here? And so what it says in Acts 1.26 is that they prayed about it and then they cast lots. And then just one verse later in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Now that's not a coincidence. Back to our passage in Acts 6, the apostles now don't make a decision by casting lots. Why is that? Why do they not cast lots any longer? Well, now that Pentecost has happened, the apostles and indeed every person there who is a believer Every person that is a believer here this morning has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And now instead of these apostles trying to figure out God's will by casting lots, they pray and they have the Holy Spirit guiding their decisions. Acts 1.26 was the very last time in the Bible that you read of the casting of lots. Now you've got this really important thing that's done through the Old Testament. Even in the story of Jonah, the godless men in the boat, they cast lots to determine God's will. But now with the coming of the Holy Spirit, everything changes. We thought a few weeks ago of the tremendous power of the Holy Spirit, giving us boldness and witness. And here we have an example of the Holy Spirit guiding believers. Now their decision in Acts 6 isn't made by casting lots. It's by letting the Holy Spirit guide them as a result of their prayers and reading God's word. 
I've heard of some Christians who still practice the casting of lots or the rolling of a dice. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. Lord, if you want me to have that house, I'll get it dirt cheap and I'll be able to buy it for such and such a price. Some Christians call it putting out a fleece. It all sounds so holy and righteous, and I've done it. But there's a problem, because if you look at the story of Gideon when he puts out a fleece, God has revealed his will to Gideon, and because of Gideon's distrust, he doesn't believe the word of God that God has given to Gideon, so he puts out a fleece to determine God's will. God has already revealed his will, but then he puts out a fleece, and then he puts out another fleece to determine God's will. There's a problem. And when we pray like that, when we ask God to work in our prayers in a certain way, sometimes we try to hold God to ransom by putting a fleece out and getting God to answer prayers in our way. I was thinking about that, this because as a church we're looking for a leader. Someone might be praying and they might think, right, this man's going to walk through the door and I want God to have him wearing a black coat. Someone on this side of the church might think, right, I've been praying about this. I'm not sure of God's will. So I'm going to have this man, I'm going to pray to God. If this is definitely God's man, he's going to be wearing a dark gray coat. That's trying to put our spin on it. We try to get God to answer prayers in our way. Instead, we've got the Holy Spirit living inside us and we're to live like that. Romans 8:14 says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. It is possible to know God's will. It is possible to know God's will in searching for a new house, in being led in terms of how you spend your time in retirement, searching for a job, looking for a wife. And here's five quick things how you can know God's guidance. First and foremost, ask God to reveal his will through his word. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Pray for wisdom, James 1. Verse 5, God promises to give wisdom to any Christian that asks for it. Examine your own motives. Matthew 6, 33, we ought to be praying with having God's glory as our chief priority. Listen to the advice of wiser and more experienced people than we are. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, it says that. And in Proverbs 13, it says, to obtain all the information necessary to make a wise and informed decision. Those are five ways that you can determine God's will. And those are five ways that we can have God's clear guiding in terms of our, who our new pastor will be. We don't have to put out a fleece. We don't have to roll a dice. God's will is revealed through his word. Let's move on. These seven men that were chosen weren't chosen on the basis of friendship. They were chosen on the basis of faithfulness. These weren't men who, who all of a sudden rose to be prominent. It was probably a reflection of what they were already doing. They've already shown leadership qualities and skill. Now, in this passage in Acts 6, the word deacon as, isn't actually used. That word is used later on in the New Testament. But this is essentially what these men were. The word deacon means servant. And there was a group of seven men chosen who would be responsible for the practical needs of the church. Now, seven isn't some sort of magic number. We don't need seven deacons. They chose seven deacons because that's the number that was needed to fulfill their responsibility. Through the experience of one group of widows getting overlooked, the apostles realized that they couldn't do everything. They delegated the waiting on tables to these seven men. 
That phrase in verse 2, the waiting on tables, it doesn't mean that the deacons were some sort of waiters serving out food. In New Testament times, business was done over tables. So if there was food to be handed out, if there, or if there was administration or taxes, it was done over tables. So in this instance, the serving of tables, or the waiting on tables, is just a practical ministry. There's no suggestion in this passage that the apostles thought this work was beneath them. That's not the suggestion at all. They just knew that God's will for them was to minister the word and to pray. At Calvary, we have heard quite a few messages in recent years about the role of elders and deacons through studying 1 Timothy. And I don't really want to spend that much time on it because we've already looked at it. And we already have elders and deacons in place. But it says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 that if you desire the office of an overseer, you desire a noble task. It also says that you bring on greater responsibility to your soul. But it's a noble task. It's a good thing to aspire to. And there might be someone here that aspires to that task. We'll be faithful and diligent in where God has placed you first. Be faithful and diligent in the role that God has for you in Calvary first. And then it may be that he calls you into one of these roles. So who are these seven men that are chosen? You've got Stephen and Philip. We know an awful lot about Stephen and Philip, but we're going to look at them in, in coming weeks, so I don't want to steal anyone's thunder. And we're, uh, we're going to have quite a few sermons on them. Stephen is introduced to us as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What a statement. Wouldn't it be humbling to be introduced in such a way? Here's Carlos, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Here's Beth, a lady full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. There's Stephen, and then there's Philip. This is the Philip who's going to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch later on in her passage. And then there's these other five men, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Interestingly, the seven men in this passage all have Greek names, indicating they were probably part of the Grecian Jewish community. So remember back to verse 1. You've got two groups of widows. One's discriminated against and the other isn't. You've got the Grecian Jews who are overlooked. And here, as part of the solution, all seven deacons were probably chosen from the Grecian Jewish community. There was a great sensitivity shown by appointing seven deacons who were probably all Greeks. Even though there were probably more Hebrews at the time, Hebrew speaking, they probably chose all seven from the Greek speakers. Now notice as part of this how much the apostles have grown. Cast your mind back to when they were with Jesus and you've got the feeding of the 5,000. You've got 5,000 men plus women and children and they've listened to Jesus speak all day. And then Jesus tells them, the 12 disciples, look, give them some food. What's the disciples' solution? Send them away. Send them away. Now you've got the same problem. You've got people who've been neglected in their food distribution. What do the apostles do this time? What do the apostles do this time? They face the problem head on. And they recognize the practical need. And they follow Jesus' loving example. They've grown as a result. The apostles in this passage aren't the solution. The apostles propose the solution, but they are not the solution. The apostles can't do everything. 
They can't be the solution. They only have time for one type of ministry, prayer and preaching the word. They say in verse 4, we want to give ourselves continually to the word of God in prayer. If you were to go into some churches through England and Northern Ireland and the UK, you will realize that a lot of churches have laid aside the preaching of the word of God in order to serve tables. If you were to go around the country, you would see a lot of churches have concentrated on keep fit classes, on knitting classes, on food banks, parents classes, money management classes, arts and crafts groups. In other words, providing for the practical and social needs of the community. And you find that as you go into some of these busy churches, that they've concentrated on the waiting on tables element from verse 2 at the expense of the ministry and prayer of the Word of God, verse 4. There's nothing wrong with meeting the needs of the people. This is encouraged in Acts chapter 6, but not at the expense of preaching the Word of God. That can't suffer as a result. All of these things need to form part of reaching out to the community, but not just to meet a physical or social need. That's why when we do events as a church, it needs to continue to be with the gospel as a focus. When we have our afternoon tea and have, have the preaching of the word of God outside, it's not just an afternoon tea. It's not so that we can meet around and have a little chinwag. That might happen, but that's not to be the focus. The aim is that the gospel shared, that believers are built up as a result. When with youth clubs, it's not to provide childcare for an hour. Non-Christians see it that way. But our focus is to be the preaching of the Word of God. Our focus as a church, as people who are helping at these different groups, is to be showing the love of Christ through the gospel. The waiting on tables part from verse 2 is not to be done instead of the verse 4 part of prayer and ministering the Word. The two have to go hand in hand with the focus on prayer ministry of the word so you've got the problem you've got the solution what's the result verse 7 tells us the word of God spread as a result of the action of the apostles delegating some of the practical work the word of God spread now we'll see this phrase the word of God spread throughout Acts even further along you've got the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9 and you've got that phrase the word of God spread after Paul's first missionary journey the word of God spread. After his second and third missionary journey, and the word of God spread. After Paul preaches before Rome in Acts 28, you've got that phrase, and the word of God spread. This is one of the first instances when this phrase is used in Acts chapter 6. And it's important because the word of God was able to spread because early on, the apostles and disciples recognize the devil's devices. And instead of getting distracted, they became more focused. They devoted themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And the result of that is that the disciples in Jerusalem, the number increased rapidly. God blessed a church that was united. They sorted out the source of the complaint and the complainers. That phrase at the end of verse 7, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I was a bit confused by this statement, to be honest. But it just means a large number of priests became obedient to the call of faith contained in the gospel. They became Christians and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
considering all that could have gone wrong when the devil attacked through this division, the people in this passage deserve a lot of credit. The Grecian Jews did the right thing by making their complaint known, and they trusted the apostle solution. The Hebraic Jews did the right thing because they recognized that the Grecian Jews had a legitimate need, and they trusted the apostle solution. The seven men did the right thing because they accepted an office that was less than glamorous, and the apostles did the right thing because they responded to a need without distracting themselves from their central task of prayer and preaching the word. And the result was that the word of God spread. So in conclusion, there was a problem, a genuine problem that needed sorting out. One group of widows getting discriminated against, and the apostles came up with a solution. They relied on the Holy Spirit to guide their decisions. And the result was a church that was united and that God blessed by causing the word of God to spread. The early church and the apostles were sufficiently alert to the devil's devices and schemes. They were alert when the, the temptation was in, in chapter 4 to shrink away from the intimidation. They were alert when Ananias and Sapphira, the hypocrites, were in the church. They were alert to the devil's schemes here through the complaining and addressing the issue. Are we alert? Are you alert to the devil's devices? Are you prepared for the devil's attack at this time of growth? My granddad used to run a sawmill. He used to work three jobs. He had 11, had 11 children. He used to work three jobs. One of them was he ran a sawmill. And he used to have a saying. He was one of those quiet men that when, when he spoke, you listened. And one of his sayings was, you don't sharpen your sword at the first drumbeat. When the battle begins, there's no point realizing that your sword is blunt. Days, weeks, months before the battle commences, you sharpen your sword. Before the devil attacks with trying to divide us, we need to be prepared as a church. Get prepared, friends, by saturating yourself in the word of God. Get prepared by living in obedience to his word. Get prepared by letting the Holy Spirit guide your life. Get prepared by forging relationships with other Christians. If there's disharmony or if there's a spirit of disunity in your life, if you've got a, a grudge against another Christian, go and sort it out like the early church did. We need to be alert to the devil's schemes like the apostles were. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And if someone has genuinely wronged you, then we've got a responsibility to love that person enough to forgive them and to move on. We need to be united as a body of Christ, being willing to put things behind us and being able to model forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us. A united church, as we have seen, is a church that God blesses. So let's honor God in being united. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We've we realize in our own lives that we are prone to complaint, that we're prone to we're prone to failure in so many areas. But Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would strengthen us to live the lives that you have called us to live in holiness and righteousness, honoring you. Lord, we pray that as a church we would be prepared for the devil's attack. 
Lord, that we will be sharpening our sword at the first drumbeat, but that we'll be preparing our hearts and our lives by saturating ourselves in the word of God and living in obedience to your word and your will. In Jesus' name.